This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Tonight we're talking with Adam Lewis with the Sound Barrier Company, and we're going to talk, Adam has had what I would deem, I don't know if we, we didn't really get into whether it was his best season or not, but I mean, he's killed three, I mean, incredible bucks this year, two Michigan public land, what I would consider giants. And, you know, we were just talking about it a little bit before the podcast, and we're going to kind of dive into his style of hunting, you know, how, you know, he's, he's able to do that. And then kind of a little bit about the the products that he has and, and how he's used those to, to help him become successful. So how are you doing tonight, Adam? Pretty good. Uh, good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, it, it was, I would say it was probably my best or close to my best season. Uh, and, you know, some of that you can control and some you can't. But, yeah, it was, it was a great season. And, um, yeah, couple really big bucks that uh i was really happy to take so we didn't dive into it before the podcast but what's your what's your history as far as like how did you come up hunting and you know are you a gun hunter and an archery hunter or um you know we're we're you know the bow hunter chronicles we kind of live and die by the bow over here but you know how, how are you brought up did you always hunt you know did you were you born in michigan and and hunted here your whole life or yeah, I I was born here. I uh, grew up hunting. You know, I started when I could, which was twelve when I was a kid. I uh, started bow hunting then, and then gun season you could hunt when you're fourteen. And so I hunted with both all the way up through, and I still do. But I pretty much, I mean, this year I didn't didn't even gun hunt. Uh, I pretty much have gone over to pretty much bow hunting primarily, uh, just because I enjoy it more. You know, there's it's better hunting. Uh, especially in Michigan here with all the pressure and stuff. So, but yeah, I grew up doing it, uh, you know, high pressure <laughs> hunting here in Michigan. And, 
really have graduated the last eight years or so to doing a lot of public land hunting, which I personally think has really helped my hunting skills a lot. Uh, if I could point at one thing, it's probably that. But yeah, that's my background. I've, I've always done it and I think finally getting decent at it. <laughs> so so when you, when you started hunting at 12 or whatever, what was it the typical Michigan style, I guess, for, for what I would say? Because John didn't grow up hunting, but with bait piles and all of that, I mean, because that's what, I mean, I guess that's what I think of Michigan hunting is, you know, you get your bag of carrots, your bag of beets, you go out there, you throw it out there and you go to that stand every weekend or every chance you get and hope something walks by and, and wants to snack on your, your bait pile there or I guess yeah. how did you how did you come to it? I'd say pretty much, you know, like a lot of people, you got one or two spots to hunt, you know, ten acres here, twenty five there. You have limited places on that land to hunt, so you got your stand and you throw some bait or whatever, and you just hunt that over and over, right? Um, so it's it's very different than the what I progressed into the more of the public land stuff and not hunting on bait, but that's, yeah, kind of your typical backyard hunting, um, neighborhood woodlot hunting, which, which can be good, but it's just super challenging and very limiting, uh, as far as your options and what you can do, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, for, for me, I grew up the first time. I mean, I missed a deer the first time I ever went up in a tree and the bait pile was probably 20 yards away. And I thought that they were too far away because I'd never shot from an elevated position. And I missed the steer straight down because it was eating on the carrots that I'd shaved off while I was sitting up there waiting for him to come in. And that was on a small, maybe 40 acre piece of, of uh, public land. And then, you know, countless sits on the, the property behind your house or, you know, wherever, if you're fortunate enough to have, we, like we had five acres and, tons of deer tracks but everything was nocturnal and so it was a lot of you know fruitless fruitless sits i i mean i'm surprised i stuck with it <laughs> you know considering but i guess what was the the transition for you you know for me you know meeting you know my wife's family and you know john's my wife's cousin john's family that you know these guys are they grew up not shooting does. They grew up not hunting bait. They just hunted deer kind of more like the style that we do now. So what was the transition like for you? I mean, how did you evolve, you know, past that? Yeah. You know, I think it was, I just kind of had to, um, the spot, the few private land spots I had were, I kind of moved a little bit and I didn't have access to private, uh, in the private land that, that I hunted with my dad, uh, which is about an hour away. It just wasn't that great uh, hunting. So I just started hunting public, and uh, that really forced me to change how I hunted. And it's, I think it's a big learning curve for guys that when they first jump into that. But it really, I think I've learned more doing that than anything else because it really for, it forced me to really think about why I'm hunting, where I hunt, and when I hunt and what the deer are doing and it just makes you get smart uh, or you're gonna have a lot of wasted sits which does happen you know but um it just forces you to wise up and uh i think it's a good teacher honestly um 
So that for me, it was a, I just kind of had to. I started hunting public and uh, had to figure it out. So, so take us through that process then when you say like you just had to wise up, you know, so there's a lot of guys out here and I mean, before, before this year and, and, and talking to some of the, the guys that are successful every year on public land, you know, I, I always thought it was almost like a, a class system, right? So public land was, was less than like you didn't have a, a food place where there was just a food plot and it was, it was real easy to to envy guys that have a, a farm or they're, you know, they have a farm that they can hunt or an orchard that they can hunt and they go there and the, there's just deer. They don't necessarily, I guess you think that they don't have to put in any work. They just go out there and sit and there's deer there and, and they're successful. Um, so, so for those guys out there that are, you know, kind of stuck in that rut where it's like, well, the, there's just a hundred guys on public land everywhere you turn, there's a stand, you know, there's guys walking past you at prime time, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how do you, how do you remedy that? Or what is your, what was your process? And, you know, maybe not just hunting smarter, but to change or to get past that mindset. I think you just have to accept that about half your hunts might get screwed up. Um, and when you do that, then you can be okay with what, what comes your way. Um, because you can get some good hunting in, but you just have to accept that some sometimes you're going to run into guys. Uh, guys are going to walk in on you. Uh, guys are going to get real territorial. There's so, so many things that can happen. Uh, but I think just accepting that first, that that's just part of the game, uh, it helps you mentally get past that. Um, and just the... Uh, the hard work part of it, of figuring other guys out too, uh, becomes part of the game. And where private land, I guess the good and bad of private is that, you know, you can control things more in private, but you're also very limited to how many places you can hunt or how aggressive you can be. Uh, on private and public, you have a lot more options. That's one of the good things about public is you don't you know if one spot somebody messes it up or even you mess it up you can just go find another spot. Uh, so that's the good and bad of it, but uh, I really like the idea of having options, and I think that really puts odds in your favor when you do that. So take us through. Let's let's just start with like your first hunt this year. Um, and, you know, so a lot of information from Adam he's got on his Sound Barrier blog that he puts out. You put that out weekly, I think? Yeah, uh, weekly or at least bi-weekly. I have a new one. So you can follow along with him. And, and so I think he killed his first buck this year. It was like the 20th of October, something like that. The 13th. Okay. So on with that, you're talking about trying to, break down these public lands and you know we were talking before the podcast john was kind of saying like you know in michigan you got a deal you got to play the hand that you're dealt right so Mm -hmm. you can't say well i'm gonna let this three and a half year old buck walk because i want to shoot this other one maybe if you've got cameras out and you know that they're all in the area um you know so what you had kind of mentioned that you know you got to kind of pick your spots and kind of 
<laughs> you you kind of know that those deer are in the area or, or, or whatever. So kind of take us through your process and, and through that hunt. And, and I guess tell us a little bit about the deer that you killed the, that one first. Yeah, well, I, I'll even back up before that. I missed a real nice one on October 5th. <laughs> um, but this year was probably my most productive uh, hunts in general meaning I had very few hunts that were like throwaways where you go out and you sit and, you know, you, you just don't feel like you have that good of a chance. Uh, I really hate those kind of hunts. And so I've tried to really minimize those over the years. And I think this year I only had a few of those where I felt, ah, uh, this is a throwaway, you know. Um, I want to try to have very specific reasons, whether it be a scouting sit or just scouting or it's, I'm going to kill something on this sit. Uh, I want to know what it, why I'm there and have uh, a pr- productive hunt. And so this year, I'd say most of my hunts were really productive. And one of the biggest reasons why was because I think I did more scouting than I ever have. And I think it's really easy, and I've done this before you know, in the past, where you just want to get out and hunt. And some of that can be scouting, but I think that leads to just a lot of aimless sitting here and there, you know, and unproductive sits. So, yeah, one of my blogs I just wrote was, you know, why your hunts aren't as productive as they should be. Uh, And I just outlined a few reasons, but I think for me this year, I just scouted more than usual. And I had intelligence or intel, I call it, as to why I was hunting certain spots at certain times and I would go in and either have a shot or in the first case, uh, get one or, or I missed that one. But, um, that first on October 5th, I had seen these deer from the road and it was public land. And before season, I was doing a lot of scouting out there and I'd see these deer crossing this field that was overlooked. Like these guys, they were scouting, and then when season started, we're hunting, we're going right past these fields because it looked unhuntable. There was really no way, no trees around them. You know, it was just really tough. And so I, I saw these bucks crossing this field, made a mental note, and then October 4th, I went in there. Uh, there was kind of this CRP in the middle of this bean field with corn on one side, and I was like probably about – 300 yards from that in a kind of a pinch point in some golden run. And that turned out to be a really great observation sit that uh, on October 4th, because I watched these three bucks come out of the CRP way across this field. Uh, and I got direct intelligence, like where they came out, the wind direction, where that was, how they moved down this. There was like a, basically a food plot that DNR put in right in daylight on public land and nobody was hunting that because it was just too hard to hunt. Right. So the next day we had the same wind and I got some real valuable Intel. Uh, instead of just plowing somewhere and hunting, I observed, uh, a lot of things. And one of them was that these bucks actually entered the field with the wind at their back, which I thought was weird at the time. But then once I got thinking about it, they could that way smell anything that came in the CRP behind them that was really thick. 
and then they could see the whole field. So they're pretty safe, or at least felt pretty safe in doing that. And so the next day we had the same conditions. I went in with a ground blind, one of those uh, mirror blinds, uh, ghost blind things, out across this field and set up right where they came out. And within half an hour of being there, they'd pop right out. And I, that buck wanted to walk and read down toward me. He was probably about a 130 or so inch eight point. And I just screwed up the shot. He was a little further than I thought. But um, it was just one of those things where I had the direct intel. I did the scouting. I knew where they were. And I hunted them, and I got a shot. And I think that's a huge part of my success this year was just getting that really good intelligence of when and where to hunt so you just go in and you you shoot something so how long have you been just on a little side note that those ghost those ghost blinds have always been like kind of intriguing to me but it seems just kind of like i don't know it's just such an odd concept to be carrying a giant mirror into the <laughs> into the woods <laughs> i mean how long have you been using that how's it been working for I you the first time was this year and i didn't know how they'd react to it um i was kind of headed behind some you know grass and stuff so it was kind of camouflage but they actually i mean they work pretty good and those deer those bucks came out and they were staring at it for a while i'm like okay they're either gonna wig out you know and run off or and they just stared at it for a while and then they just accepted it and just acted like complete normal. And I probably could have let that bug get closer. I actually was kind of concerned that at some point he'd like kind of see more of it, but it actually worked way better than I thought it would. So, uh, I think, I mean, it's in my arsenal now. So was this on the same property where you ended up killing your first buck there or was it just a completely different set of bucks, set of circumstances? Yep, completely different area. And that's another good thing about public land. If you screw up a spot, you don't have to keep hunting it. <laughs> um, again, you have options, right? So uh, totally different spot. The first one I shot, um, October 13th, was because I did winter scouting in this area. And I found this bedding area that was uh, didn't have a lot of bow hunter sign. So that's what I was looking for. And I, I found some really big rubs from the year before or the fall before. And so I knew it was a, a good area. There was like crop fields on two sides of it. Um, and so I, I picked out a tree. And so I, I knew it was a generally good area that they used. I got a funnel, you know, and picked out a tree. And actually that one um, wasn't, I guess, direct intel. It was more one of those, okay, this should be a good spot. And I went in there uh, in the morning, first sit, and this is October 13th. I saw, I think, 18 deer and three or four different bucks, and they were chasing does, like, pretty hard. Uh, it just happened to be real tore up in there, and I got one of the bucks, the nicer buck, to walk by me at 35 yards. So um, that wasn't like a direct intel, but it was from scouting, winter scouting. And so what was the sign like in there? I mean, outside of the fact that it was, you know, a good, you know, area between bedding and stuff like that. I mean, were you finding 
you know, waist high rubs or it was just a spot where, you know, you were going to go and there should be a good deer in there because again, like that's kind of like what we were talking about before the podcast, as far as, you know, Michigan hunting in the, the caliber of deer, you, you know, you killed a nice one in Ohio and, you know, we've talked about hunting Ohio here before on the podcast and just the deer that you see regularly in Ohio are much different than what you're, what you're seeing here. So, I mean, to, to kill a, a three-year-old buck here in Michigan, just to walk into a place and kill him because you, you had a hunch or, or, or whatever, what, what was the sign telling you, or why did you think that there would be a good buck in there? Well, I guess from history, from hunting this general area, uh, there's always, I always found big rubs in this general area coming out of this really, really thick stuff and just could not find a good place to hunt it. So, I went in there in the winter, busted back through all this really thick stuff and found actually an opening back in there, a grassy opening that I even booted deer out of in the winter. I could tell that, you know, was a bedding area. And they, I, I, there was a funnel back there. I found some really big rubs. So there's all these, you know, pieces coming together that, hey, this is uh, year after year, there's probably a good buck that uses this. And this is a natural funnel here. Uh, going from this bedding area out into these this oak flat kind of, and it was kind of on the edge of it, so just it was kind of a perfect setup to just slip in there on the edge if you had a west wind, catch deer falling through, um, and and that's basically what I did. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a history, I guess, history of year after year sign. Uh, it should be good this year. And it, it was when I got when I got back in there, it was just tore up with scrapes and rubs and stuff. So I didn't know that at the time, but it was the history of it, I guess, that told me it's probably a good, good spot to try. So when you're looking for these spots, are you are you looking on on Onyx and scouting them out ahead of time, or are you just saying, well, these are the areas that I hunt and going in historically, or or how are you looking at it, say? What made you choose to go in there in the winter? Um, it, I mean, I've hunted the area for probably about seven years now. So I know a lot around this chunk of public land. It's a pretty big chunk. So I, I knew general sign from hunting in, you know, the area. And thick areas, swampy areas, stuff like that. Um, so it was just kind of on my radar to check out. I, I do some, like, Google Earth, you know, looking at stuff and finding areas that should be good or that, okay, this looks like a pinch point or what have you. And that can help narrow it down. But this was more of, Hey, I've been through here before and you know, year after year, I see some big rubs that show up. Uh, where are these bucks coming from? And can I get back in there? Uh, and get, catch them, you know, before dark, basically when they're actually catch them moving. With that, what, what is your setup for your stand and, and, and kind of how you're, you're getting set up? Uh, that, in that case, I used a climber. It was kind of one of those, uh, I think my climber will go in that tree <laughs> and I had to kind of do a pull up to get up in it. But, um, I use a climber when I can. I also have like a lone wolf stick sticks. It just depends on the scenario, I guess. Uh, so that was like a pre-scouted thing. So you had a tree picked out that you, yep. you're pretty sure your climber would 
would work in? Yep, that was the winter thing. So I figured out a tree. Um, and I literally just walked in in the dark and found it and got up in it. And what what climber are you using? I've lone wolf. It's a sitting climb, I think. Yeah, I so I hunted yesterday with one of my buddies, and uh, he's he has yet to kill a deer with his bow. And so we went into this area, and I had a lone wolf sit and climb. I sold it to commit to stand and stick hunting this year. And I've got an old um, two-piece loggy bio similar to a, a summit or something. It's not one of the real, real old ones. Mm-hmm. But, man, did I take that lone wolf for granted. I'd used it for probably like the last four years. And it was just, I was in a, a really, like, shaggy bark oak tree that was like as big as I could possibly get the stand around they were it was all the way on the end and I just fought up and down up and down oh my god it was miserable and I was cursing that stand just every single second of it so so why didn't you bring your sticks because I would so I didn't know because I was filming for him I didn't know if I was going to be in the same tree so I would have had to let him go up and then climb up underneath them with the thing and film from underneath them. Because if I was thinking if we were going to be in the same tree, I would have climbed up above them. Right. But you could have stolen above them with your sticks. I guess behind them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Care, I guess. I I didn't think about it like that. I was thinking Clo. like, okay, we're gonna, <laughs> yeah. See, then this is why this is why John is like the he's the brains or the uh, the like the guy that thinks through everything <laughs> yeah i mean it's a work in progress it always feels like um to figure out the best setup you know and i mean i i like having a stand already there but obviously you can't do that uh a lot of the time in pokeland but i like to try to just eliminate commotion and noise and stuff and uh climbers aren't the greatest at that they're okay but um just one of the necessary evils, I guess, of public land hunting. Yeah, I, I I was like, well, I'll just keep this climber around in case I need it for something like this. And I'm about ready to just throw it in the trash, donate it to somebody who who wants to get into hunting because it's a great stand if you haven't used a lone wolf or something better. But it's just I, one of those I donated things. mine years ago. <laughs> I do have a summit yet, but. I, I think I used that twice at the beginning of the season. Then the rest was with the sticks. I started with the Summit Climber, you know, and, and they're good. Um, but then I went to Lone Wolf, and I, I would not go back to a Summit. Yeah, it's, it's just a different uh, – just the way that the the straps cam and the way that they're just so quiet, you know, the, just that polyurethane or whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's just so much – I, it's just night and day difference. And like I said, I, I just completely took it for granted because I was like, oh, I've used this stand, you know, for five years. It was no problem. <sighs> Miserable. But <laughs> I knew. So this year I never sat in the same tree twice um, unless w- when we were on our property up in the Upper Peninsula, I, I sat in a couple preset stands. I sat in one preset stand once in the morning, once at night. And aside from that, I never sat in the same tree twice, but I knew if I kept my climber that I would be lazy and I would go back to 
the same trees, the same area, the same everything. And I wanted to make sure that I changed that this year, just, I guess, so that I could at least give myself the, I don't know, the gratification that I did it. Cause mm-hmm. I, I knew for a fact that I wasn't, that I wouldn't do it. And, you know, after yesterday, I would if I would have went up with the stand and sticks, like the first couple of times, like I had sticks kick out on me and I had, you know, just wrestling with it and, you know, I didn't, I didn't practice enough in the, in the off season to be completely comfortable with it. So noise and just, I don't know, as cumbersome as everything was because it's a new process. I would have 100% just shit canned them and went right to, right back to the lone wolf. So I, I mean, I'm glad that I did it, but that being said, I do miss that stand. <laughs> so I don't know. So, what are you shooting for a bow and and what's your what's your arrow setup and all that? Um, I've got a Matthews Halon six. This is my I think third third year with that. Uh, really happy with that. Um, I shoot roll tip arrows this year. Um, they fly fly good for me. I mean, I'm not like a snob about my setup, um, but I switched over to I've never I've always shot fixed blade broadheads. And this year I shot uh, some muzzies, I think trocar. Uh, there's a couple of different variations, but one of them's uh, fixed, and they're really short. They've gone, you know, really short uh, front to back on them, and they they fly really good. So I think I'm going to kind of stick with that. Um, and I did that I actually went on an elk hunt earlier this year, so I needed something that I could shoot long range, and. Uh, those did that pretty good, so nothing too fancy, I guess. But yeah, those I I have said the trail cars. I've hunted with those last two years, and then I I built a set for elk, one with the trail car and one with the slick trick, which they're basically you know shooting the same spot. Matter of fact, I shaved the fletchings off one of my arrows, <laughs> but they're both really good fixed blade broadheads. What was your uh... So where did you go on your elk hunt? Uh, Utah, northeast Utah. It was it was a learning experience. We'll, <laughs> we'll say that. Had you been elk hunting before? Nope. First first time. I always wanted to. Uh, finally convinced uh, a couple guys, and it wanted being just two of us. But uh, somebody to go, and uh, it was it was fun. Uh, I want to go back. I have kind of. Ate a tag, so that wasn't fun. But <laughs> yeah, we just, had, we did that this year too. <laughs> yeah, but it's just so different. I mean, just hunting in the mountains. You know, what's that about? Um, so, did you guys just was it completely DIY? Did you guys uh, have a guide or any anything? No, it's just DIY. We uh, as much research as we could. We we drove out there and we we get to our first location and uh we're gonna drive back in you know and then hike from there and the road is just nothing but boulders like and we get two miles back on this boulder road and just kind of like can't go any further type thing so uh it was it was an adventure i'll I'll put it that way but uh we made it back and (laughs) it was just fun so uh why did you choose utah um, being a teacher, the issue, I've always wanted to go elk hunting, but 
never find somewhere I could actually go uh, while I'm off. Uh, good and bad about teaching is, yeah, we get the summers off, but it's never, I can't take time off during the year. So it's either just like a long weekend here or there. So to elk hunt, uh, by the time elk season is usually open, I'm in school and I can't go anywhere. Uh, so Utah is actually opened August 18th. So I had about 10 days that I could actually hunt. So it just boiled down to that, that I could actually do it for once. So did you guys call or anything while you're out there? I mean, that's real. I mean, they're still vocal, but that's real early. We did not hear any elk, and I tried calling a little bit, but, you know, nothing, no response. Uh, we basically started haunting them kind of like deer. We had to just find sign and try to ambush them. Or, uh, it was challenging for sure. One of, the, one of the things we were kind of counting on was uh, that it was supposed to be dry out there, and you know, hot, and so we just find a water hole, and it literally poured twice a day when we were out there. <laughs> so <laughs> the water thing was out, so we just had to just try to find sign, and you know, it, it was it was challenging. And then we ran into a, like there were cattle everywhere, so it was trying to decipher what was a cow track, what was an elk track, you know, uh, but. That was our that was our original plan. It kind of turned into uh, deer hunting them, you know, ambush trying to ambush them. So for the for your next elk hunt, what's the plan? Uh, go deeper. Uh, just be willing to just push further than we did. I mean, we, we did some of that, but uh, we we found where we were. There were other guys hunting, and. There was sign, but as soon as season started after a day or two, the elk were like miles back. So we had to just keep pushing deeper and deeper. And, uh, that was a big thing, just be willing to get way, way back in and be willing to hike something eight miles out or something. So would you go back to the same spot just because you have like unfinished business? Or are you going to – or is it, is it just going to be, well – Utah has that season, so you're you're kind of stuck to that, or are you going to try and work something in maybe to something a little bit more conducive to calling or, or anything uh, like that? I'd love to uh, if I can. Uh, right now, I'll probably stick with the Utah early season thing uh, if I can. I mean, we there were out there. Um, I had a buddy that was out there the week after we were in like the base, like two, two basins over and he saw a lot of elk. Uh, so I think I'd go back in the same general area. Uh, cause there, there's a lot of elk there. It's just finding them and just, just learning, you know, uh, <laughs> they're just so kind of neat that to learn a few lessons and hopefully next time have a little luck. Yeah. I mean that that's, so we went out for our first elk hunt this year, John, got bit by the born and raised bug and he's like, well, we need to go out. <laughs> so this real quickly turned into elk hunting podcast and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and we learned everything we could and went out there and called in a couple elk and just couldn't, couldn't get it done. And it was the last, last couple of days. And, and now, you know, the guy that there's a, 
a guy that comes into our pharmacy who um, has a place out there and he was helping us out and kind of guiding us, you know, where to go, you know, check this out, whatever, showed us on the map, you know, you won't die here. So um, <laughs> that's kind of where we went, but it's not a real high density elk area. And, you know, we, well, I say we, John called in some elk. <laughs> I was just there making elk sounds. Um, and I think if we were to go somewhere with a little bit more dense population, we went right at the opener just because that's the way that it lined up. I think if we would have been a week later, um, when they were a little bit more vocal, it would have been a completely different hunt, but I feel like we learned so much, um, going out there and now I'm, I'm like really torn as to like to go back there and try and figure it out. Or, you know, John's got a buddy in Montana and we've got, you know, met guys through the podcast out in Colorado. It's like, man, I don't know know what I want to do next. Um, but I think going out there, that's why I was asking about Onyx is I think, I learned so much about reading terrain and, and, and maps and, and everything that I applied to whitetail hunting, um, just from going out West. I mean, I think in, you know, we, I don't know if you guys had like a base camp or you were bivy camping or whatever, but I mean, we were like two miles from the truck hiking, you know, 10 miles a day, 11 miles a day. We got into elk when it was six miles from our camp. So it was, it was definitely putting in some work, but we weren't at very high elevation. We were five, 6,000 feet. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, we were on 10,000 the whole trip. Um, but I think once you, like guys from Michigan like us, I think just getting out there and doing it wherever you're at out west is, is part of the learning thing. And you, you should be able to take those lessons to whatever western state you're going to and hopefully apply them. But, uh, yeah, it's just doing it uh, first first thing. So you can kind of get that under your belt. Well, our, our goals were very simple, was hear an elk, see an elk, and get an opportunity. And we kind of got all three of those, whether, it, you know, our opportunities were at 60 yards or, John, you know, we had one at inside of 30 and just – there's too much brush and yeah, they, a, they were dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we had an awesome time though. I, my favorite part of the whole trip was we ended up, uh, I ended up calling in a really nice bull, at least a five by five. And we were literally screaming at each other probably for 45 minutes. Wow. And we just, that one, Adam had him at like 62 yards, but, you know, it just wasn't a real, it wasn't a real shot opportunity, not a, not an ethical one, you know, for our standards. So, you know, he made the right choice and didn't take the shot, but it was definitely an awesome trip. I mean, we had a great time, so. Yeah. And you, you had said that about the, you know, the fixed blade broadheads, we were in Idaho and we set everything up all summer to shoot fixed blades. And so I was shooting hundred grain tooth of the arrows and shot two deer this year. And they went, they didn't go a hundred yards between the two of them both fell over. So that was cool. But 
I don't know. We, I kind of go back and forth because I've had some not necessarily bad experiences with the Rage Broadheads because I've made some marginal shots that have killed deer, but it just hasn't. I feel like the science behind it of losing all of that kinetic energy, you know, yeah. having to open them up and then being that wide cutting surface, you know, the wider you get, the more drag and all of that. Um, I don't know. Sh- shooting them with these fixed blades has been de- definitely a kind of eye opening, I guess. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's, um, fixed blades have always killed, you know, animals and there's just one less thing that could potentially go wrong. And so I, I like to just try to eliminate factors that could screw up my hunt. Uh, and that's one of them. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of why I go with them. Um, and now that they're flying, they're, you know, making them that fly much better at long distances. For me, that you know, is kind of a no brainer. Yeah. Especially once you get your bow, I mean, with the bows nowadays, they're, they're, they're damn near like a gun. I mean, I mean they're so freaking accurate once you get them tuned right. And then your arrows tuned right, you know, fixed blade broadhead, especially like you're saying, the short ferrule, like the muzzies and the slick tricks and the tooth of the arrow, they, they're flying great. Yep. So when you say that you're, you know, maximizing stuff from your hunt and, and, and all that, and you said that you're a teacher, you're a science teacher. Now, how have you kind of put that into your hunting or do you look at like, do you, what, what is your thought process when you look at hunting gear from, you know, that sort of standpoint, do you look at it, at everything, do you analyze everything like 100% kind of like John does, like as like a mechanical or like an engineering type thought process? Are you looking at it from the, the science of it? Um, I try to the most I can. Yeah. I, I think it really boils down to odds and putting odds in your favor whether it be scouting, and, and that was a big thing this year for me that, uh, you know, why I feel I was so productive on my hunts was the scouting. I had true intelligence. I wasn't just going with my gut. Uh, I had real intelligence. Either I saw something or I had really fresh sign that told me a big buck was in the area, which was the second uh, Michigan buck I got. Uh, I had that. Uh, I had some sort of intelligence or actually, you know, trail cam or – classing them or seeing them but having that intelligence uh not just going with my gut or you know i feel like this or that but the more of that i can get the better the better off you are i feel and then yeah just looking at your gear and stuff like what what can you i really think through stuff and i really try to prepare my gear so it's all ready and i don't screw something up and with my background, you know, uh, science and I've taught physics for a lot of years. And one of my huge pet peeves hunting has always been noise that I make, uh, unavoidable noise. And, you know, just one noise can totally screw up your hunt. So I've long story short, done a lot of research on deer hearing, uh, started a company that, uh, we help with blog, I write a blog about it, but also products to help decrease noise and eliminate noise as being just a huge one of those factors that can screw up your hunt. Uh, one noise, right? So yeah, I really go through my gear, 
uh, I silence everything. I get rid of stuff that I don't need that could make noise or just get in the way. Um, and then I use a product, Buck Bumper, to just wrap anything and silence anything I possibly can that could I could clang or bump or clunk or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of anal, I guess <laughs> you could say about some of that stuff. Cause when you, I mean, if you're just going in and you're gun hunting and you got this blind in the middle of a field, uh, there's more room for error than if you're going in to a bedding area or real close to a bedding area and trying to set up and then hunt. Like there's just, there's just no room for error. So you kind of have to be really, uh, in a way, a perfectionist about that, in, in my opinion. And, and that's what I try to do. And, and when I do that, I feel like I at least have a chance. And when I don't, like I know it, and I usually, <laughs> those usually aren't good hunts, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty meticulous, I guess you could say, um, or try to be. Well, talk to us a little bit about the deer hearing. I want to. I want to hear about that because, you know, they, everything is all said that you can't fool a deer's nose. You know, you can do all sorts of other things and, you know, all, you know, I think, I feel like everyone that's ever been hunting has done something, you know, you've been in a situation where like, I'm not sure why that deer did that or, you know, did they hear me? Could they hear me? You know, you know, we talked about climbers and my father-in-law will tell you that he used the old baker stands that went had bucks come running in and you know because they they were curious so there's that balance between deer being curious animals and you know so so let uh, you know let's talk a little bit about the deer hearing if you've if you've researched it uh, I'm, I'm interested now so i think kind of put in perspective if uh, you know most of your listeners are what michigan ish or i mean you're probably gonna be you got guys all over right yeah um, yeah but I think there is a big difference if you're hunting a high-pressure area or state versus a low-pressure, you know, or outside of Michigan. And public versus private, I think there's a huge difference. Uh, but in Michigan, from my experience, like uh, deer and especially bigger bucks, they just don't tolerate anything. Uh, so those noises, those little noises, are they don't tolerate. Um but yeah, so my research, uh, deer hearing, if I could boil it down, they hear the same as humans in one way, and that's kind of the uh, sound pressure level or intensity. So how loud they hear, it's not like they can hear uh, much better than us as far as what is soft or loud. But they obviously have ears they can rotate. They can hone in on sounds, locations. They uh, have a different uh, sweet spot of frequency. So they're actually uh, adapted and created to hear sounds that kind of fall uh, right in the spectrum of a lot of noises we make. Um, I found that out through doing testing of actual hunter sounds. So... Uh, went down to the University of Toledo several years ago, did a bunch of sound testing, like breaking branches, leaves, uh, clanging equipment. Took a look at the whole, the full, you know, frequency spectrum of that stuff. And a lot of the 
peaks and where those are loudest is where deer hear the best. So you know, they're they're obviously really well advantaged to to hear us. And then another way is they actually hear ultrasonic, so they hear above uh, what we can hear. So there's frequencies of things, noises that we make that we can't hear that they can type thing. And those are the, the higher frequencies are the ones that help them uh, pinpoint sound. So, you know, if you make a little noise, they can tell exactly where it came from. And, you know, one example of that is if you uh, do rattling or you do grunting, I mean, they'll come right to your tree from, you know, a quarter mile away. They, they can really pinpoint where any sound comes from. Uh, so, yeah, it's a big deal, uh, especially in, like I said, high high pressure areas like Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, where deer just don't tolerate that stuff. And uh, from my experience, deer know the difference between a noise you make and a squirrel or whatever that's in the woods. So I just try to eliminate any of it and all of it as much as possible. So that's kind of the, I guess, some of the reasons behind deer hearing, but then, you know, starting this company Sound Barrier to come up with products and ways to help hunters eliminate that because it's, it's kind of an overlooked thing. You know, everybody's on this scent, you know, industry kind of drives stuff. So everybody's on this scent stuff, which obviously that's important, but the hearing thing's really overlooked and i mean it's it's one of the three senses that that they use in you know in uh trifecta so to say they use together to stay alive right so uh pretty big pretty big deal on that and that's what some berries about so with that with your research and coupled with you know your your company and your your you know you got a lot a lot of time and everything invested into this. What are the the top three things I think that would be your pet peeves or what would be the number, you know, one, two, and three things that you would, if you were only going to sound dead in one thing or, you know, number two, number three, what are the biggest, you know, problematic pieces of gear that you have? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I mean, I think in general, anything that's metal or plastic, you've got to do something with. Uh, I think, boy, I think buckles are a big deal. Like, I don't even have my buckles on my lone wolf anymore. Uh, you can you can take our product and actually cover them. Um, but just that metal, they had a chance to, like, fling around and, Hit something, and I think tree stands are another real huge one. Uh, once they're set, they're usually okay, but it's putting them up and taking them down. Where that's where you make so much a lot of noise. So those are the biggies, I think. You know, sticks, your stand, and then uh, beyond that, just little stuff that. Uh, one thing is annoying to me that I haven't been able to get around is the. Uh, and so if you guys have a solution, let me know. But is uh, like a climbing harness, like there's buckles on it that you can't really get around. Like there's metal buckles, right? Uh, so that's kind of annoying to me, but just little things that will 
will find something to, to clank, you know? I mean, if you were, I, I mean, there's going to be guys out there. I mean, the first answer that comes to mind is going to be like the rock climbing guys that, you know, so I was in the Marines and we had like my repelling harness was simply a piece of rope. <laughs> that was it. And so there was just these special knots that you tied and that was, that was what it was. And, you know, I, I would probably guarantee that OSHA or, you know, as far as like the actual safety of, of using that. But at the same time, those knots are, you know, there's nothing to, nothing to fail there. If you were, if you were so inclined, you could make yourself a rock, rock harness just from, just from, from climbing rope. But yeah, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, you know, before the podcast, but that's the one thing I need to put some sound deadener on my carabiners on my lineman's belt, because inevitably when I'm 10 feet up or whatever, hanging my neck stick, clink, those yeah. are, are right on the steps. And then it's like, why did I take so much time getting out here, setting up the first sticks, setting everything down so quietly? And it right. seems like that noise right there just reson resonates through the woods. Like it, you could hear that for, I mean, a quarter mile away. Like on the human <laughs> audio spectrum, yeah. not the right. And it's definitely not something that you'd normally hear out in the woods. That metal clank. Yeah, I don't know. It, for me, one of the things, and it's one of the things, and maybe you can help me with this. So on your lone wolf, what do you do? You have the whole like platform covered in buck bumper or sound deadener or paracord or, or something. Because when I shot my buck, it was snowing pretty, pretty good. So the stand was wet and I couldn't like move my rubber boot any little tiny bit without that. It was just terrible, terrible. Yeah. Um, no, I don't wrap the whole stand. I mean, it, our stuff is really light, so that's one real good thing about it. It is real sound deadening. It's, it's actually way better. I know a lot of guys are into that moleskin stuff, but um, ours is really a lot better at sound deadening than that. It's really light, um, so it doesn't add weight, you know, or insignificant weight to your gear, even if you did wrap all of it. Um, but I'll wrap my sticks. So my, my sticks are completely covered in it. Uh, my stand, I just hit like strategic points where it could be metal on metal contact, but I don't have it like on the uh, platform or anything like that. So it's more like underneath the seat when you fold it, that it could be metal on metal when you're hanging it or taking it down. Things like that is what I look for on the, uh, stand pretty much. So it's just, uh, spots here and there kind of so you'd mentioned this you know we, we said that you killed you know three really nice bucks and you had mentioned that you know that 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 second buck was a little bit more more scientific as far as your intel and everything you know before we let you go here let's hear about this other so w that first buck that you killed what what was that one and and how did he score and everything for for michigan um, I didn't score him. He was a eight push and 10 point. He was probably about a hundred inches or so. Um, if I could guess which for Michigan public land, like I'll shoot that all day. Um, you know, that, that's kind of my standard. And if you have ever hunted Michigan public land, you, you, you know that, you know, that's, that's pretty decent buck. 
Um, yeah, the, so the second buck was actually the next weekend. So it was a uh, shot the first one on a Saturday morning, first sit, right? Uh, the next uh, weekend, I actually took a Friday off, was there with my dad in the public land. We just kind of camped out. In that Friday afternoon, we did a bunch of scouting, and we just found a ton of fresh sign. We, we found huge rubs along this swamp going out to this uh, field and found this huge scrape line. I mean, some of the scrapes were as big as a, uh, a dinner table. And we found this line of, like, probably at least 20 scrapes. I mean, it was almost, like, ridiculous, uh, you know, textbook. Like, oh, this is... <laughs> A line of scrapes. And really fresh. It was obvious there was a, at least one really big buck, and there was a group of bucks that were hitting these. So um, I came back that evening and found a pinch point coming off that field going back into the swamp that I knew they would travel right along those scrapes to go back in bed. And the, the, a lot of things came together on that. One of them was the fresh sign. Like, I mean, it said, you know, hunt it now. Another one was that night it was super windy, which is, I, I love that just to hang a set. So that's what I call a cover sound. So, I mean, it's super windy. Any noise I'm going to make, anything I need to do is going to be covered by that wind, you know. And so I got set up and I hunted that night, but it really was kind of a throwaway sit. I was really waiting on the next two morning uh i was pretty sure it would come on in the morning and uh i'd have like a couple mornings that i could hunt that spot and that fresh sign so that's what i did the next morning i came in and about 15 minutes after light sure enough here comes this buck right like trotting right down that scrape line like it was just textbook and he came in front of me 12 yards i stopped him got 30 yards just there uh and i actually thought i missed him or was questioning if i hit him because it, it happened so quick and he just plopped over <laughs> so that was kind of one of the ones where it's like we had direct intel you know we didn't i never saw this buck um but we knew there was a fresh buck sign. uh it said hunt it now you know i had the right conditions uh, in the right spot to catch him, sneak him back to his bed, and, then, and that's exactly what happened. And, you know, you can put all that in your favor and still not see something. But just so many things lined up that it was uh, – it, I had a high chance to get something the first or second time I hunted it. Right, you're stacking your odds. Yep. And then what was that, Buck? That was uh, nine point. He scored one thirty two. So yeah, real nice buck. <laughs> yeah, that that's the biggest I've shot in Michigan. And I mean, on public land, that was kind of. I know it happens, right? Got to shoot bigger than that. But um, that was that was a pretty good deer. <laughs> and so is that's the one. I guess I, I think I've seen one of your videos. It, it, do you film that one, or you film all of them? That's, um, I actually got that shot on film. So if you watched any of them, yeah, that's the other two I didn't get on film. I mean, this year I was kind of hit or miss filming. I, I didn't last year. I 
got it out again this year, but I wasn't willing to put a ton of effort into it or screw up a hunt just to try to film it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one, yeah, I had it set up. It was kind of the perfect, uh, I mean, he walked right down in front of me, so I didn't have to mess around with the camera too much. And so, yeah, I got that one on film. All right. And that's on your YouTube. That's the sound barrier YouTube. All right, I'll put that in the the show notes so that everybody will be able to find it on the on the website and and check it out. Cool. Yeah, so I mean, you've just had a stellar season. Just I mean, we've had you on here for an hour. If you want to quick kind of just go through your Ohio hunt, what what did you shoot down there? The, sure, I shot a pretty nice eight point. Um, it was kind of tough down there this year. Uh, I hunt two. I have private land access, two properties. And just had not been seeing really hardly anything to shoot, uh, Ohio standards at least. And um, that was one of the ones that I did. But it was just kind of a tough season, a little more of uh, grinding it out. But, yeah, um, back to kind of the gathering intel, right? I had one property that I really wanted to hunt, (laughs) and then my gut was like, okay, you're you're overhunting this property over here, but I had seen this buck a previous weekend. I knew he was a shooter, and he had shown up on trail camera a few times, so it was kind of his area. And the other property that I wanted to hunt and felt, you know, my gut was kind of telling me, ah, oh, you need to give this one a rest and hunt over here. It just, the intel was not there. I just, there was it was too much of a gamble to just think someone was, would show up over there. And so I had to just, okay, this is what science telling me. I got to hunt this and, uh, wound up, I think it went down there four times, four different weekends. And I got him, I think November 12th. Um, but again, another one of those, Hey, I'm going with the Intel, not uh, some sort of feeling I got, you know, about where I should try. And then what was that one? I'll put, I'll put uh, pictures of all of these up. Yeah, he's about uh, 130. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'd shoot him down in Ohio too. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually thought he was way bigger than that when I, he came in. I thought he was a different block. Um, but, you know, with my season down there and uh, what I've been seeing, it is actually was a pretty good, pretty good block for the. Uh, what it you know what it had in camera what i've been seeing and uh coming from out of state you know last year i ate all my tags so <laughs> this year i didn't really want to do that either so yeah you know what the last day john says he could have shot him i think it was further than he than his range finder said because when i was ranging him but i could have shot maybe a hundred inch eight point in idaho on the last day and I tried stalking in on him, and I had him at like 38, I think. And I tried to, I, was, I told myself I was going to try to get to 25. He was bedded. Which was crazy. <laughs> 25 and that stuff. At 38 was an awesome stock. <laughs> but when we, my, my range finder was fine. I don't know what you're talking about. It was 54 yards from where we were when we first seen him. It just seemed way further than that. He was laying down underneath a, a deadfall back up against the stump but but i mean 
it's it's just one of those things. Like, so you talked about going out to Utah and eating a tag. I mean, you know, I ate a thousand dollars worth of tags damn near out in, yeah. out in Idaho. And before, so generally we take a trip the first week of October or first week of November, excuse me, like a, a, like the rutcation type thing. So before I went up to our property in the UP with my father-in-law, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to see as many deer this year because I was hunting brand new spots, spots I'd never hunted before, changing everything up and, you know, fumbling through it, I guess. And I was just like kicking myself because I'm like, man, I should have shot that deer, that deer in, in Idaho, but it was like the last day type thing. So I know all about the, the out of state type thing. But one of the questions I have for you real quick before you go, because I don't, you know, we don't run trail cameras very often um, and not to a degree where we're, you know, there's the properties, you know, my, our property in the UP is farther away than it is to get to Southern Ohio and the caliber of deer is night and day. Um, but I'd need a, a, a cell camera or something to even make it worthwhile because a, a seven hour drive to check a trail camera and yeah. do any of that is, is not happening. Um, but do you think it changes the way that you view your hunting? Like knowing that these deer are, are there, like which specific deer is there? Does it change your, I guess the expectation or what you're, what you're thinking about, um, killing i guess you know we talk about uh earlier not knowing that these deer are there having never seen them before and you know you're almost surprised and then when you talk about the deer that you shot in ohio it's like well i thought he was bigger because there was another another deer there like was it a letdown or do you, do you think it changes like knowing the deer are there is it, it, it you know because I, I don't we don't run them so it's it's not like right anything i have to struggle with well, this, this was more of a case of just the watching him walk through the woods. It was getting kind of dark. You know, I just thought he was a, a different, bigger deer that I hadn't seen before. So it was probably more of the Michigan and me coming out, you know, and adding about 20 inches. <laughs> you know? um, but in general, yeah, I look at trail cameras as just, again, more intel and having reason to hunt somewhere. Because uh, when I just want to get as much as I can. Uh, especially when I go out of state, you know, I don't want to waste sits. Like I've got a weekend, I've got, let's say five sits or whatever it is. Like I don't want to waste any of them. So I want to know why I'm hunting somewhere. And if I don't have any Intel scouting trail cameras, whatever to tell me I should be hunting this property or that property or this spot or that spot, then that just doesn't make sense to me. So to me, it's just another bit of information you can have uh it i mean it can it can steer you wrong in the fact that if something doesn't show there you think the property is bad you know because deer don't necessarily all show up on a trail camera uh but it just is one more thing that i i think i like to use to just get a little more information you know, and help me make that decision a little better of, you know, where am I going to hunt and why am I hunting here? But, uh, I don't know, you know, it's kind of, I kind of go back and forth, I guess, get back to your question as far as that second Michigan buck I shot, I'd never seen him before. 
and I, I kind of like that, you know, not knowing everything. <laughs> uh, but they are helpful. I mean, especially when you're out of state and uh, you want to know what's there. Uh, want to try to make a decision before it shows up. Like, is this a shooter or not? Uh, stuff like that, uh, especially if they have, like, you're on a property that has, hey, you know, 130 or better or whatever it might be. Uh, you can kind of take some of the buck beaver out of it, you know, and know what you should or should not shoot. So this is my take on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't discount the, um, like, the, the value in them, but I just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I talked to uh, a buddy of mine. He said, you know, I want to go out and check my trail cameras because I want to see if there's anything still alive after gun season to see if it's even worth going out and shooting. It's like, to me, that isn't necessarily like the essence of a hunter. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, why didn't you shoot a doe? And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't shoot does. It doesn't do anything for me. It's too much like work. And, I guess there's that kind of like trophy hunter aspect of it in, in, in his statement, 100%. But, you know, I mean, the last podcast or a couple podcasts ago, when I talked about the deer that I killed, when I killed that hundred and whatever inch 10 point, um, I was just like completely taken aback that that deer was even there. I mean, I was going to shoot the spike that walked by right before him just because i was on on there with none of that you know information that that deer was there and it was just simply man i'm glad i saw a deer today here i mean i i understand like that's you know the the point that your your blog was saying in in a sense of why your hunts aren't as successful because if i'd have shot that deer and that other one walked out i would have been devastated Right. Um, you know, if I had just had a trail camera or, or something out there to, you know, to, to do that. But, you know, it, I don't know. I guess it, it's just that thing where you're always looking for bigger. And I think one of the things I've, I've taken away from this and, and kind of like learning from guys that are, you know, continuously successful in the things that they do is kind of getting away from, you know, they, they don't hunt the guys that, that we're, we're kind of following along with, they're not hunting inches and they're not, maybe not necessarily hunting specific deer. They're hunting age class more than specific deer. And that you just kind of take the opportunities that you're given, you know, versus holding out for this one specific deer. Yeah. I think there's a balance and you can get overboard with it. Um, and yes, that's kind of where each person has to kind of find that as to why you're out there hunting, you know, uh, what, what is a good deer to you, you know? And, uh, I think it can be taken overboard, uh, or you can go overboard with it. And you have to be able to enjoy it. Well, it doesn't matter. Somebody's always going to shoot something bigger. I mean, you can shoot the biggest deer of your life and then somebody's just going to, well, I, shot this one with a gun or I shot this one with a crossbow. I, I just, I'm so passionate about bow hunting because it's so damn hard. Like I, there's been so many times where everything has gone completely right and it's still been messed up, you know, deer at 10 yards or I, I miss deer at 12, 
five, 35, <laughs> you know, it, easy shots, you know, and it, with a rifle, they'd be dead. And I think every deer to me with a, with, with a bow is a trophy. And I just love that experience. And as soon as that, that goes away or I'm, I'm chasing a specific deer feeling, I think, I don't know. I, I don't think I'll feel the same way. Hard to say. Hard to say. Is he still there? Did we lose yep. you? Oh. Okay. I'm just, just like. I was just uh, contemplating what you said. Deep thoughts with Adam. Well, <laughs> you know, it's that doctorate. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Adam. It's just one of those things. <clears throat> but, yeah, man, this has been good. You know, real good conversation. And um, I guess where can everybody follow along with everything that you're doing? And uh, I guess you you mentioned that you had the your product and you know you said the buck bumper, but I mean, kind of kind of give us the the whole ins and outs of it and where we can you know check it out if if people are interested. And how can we follow along with you? Yeah, so uh, soundbarrierhunting.com is our website soundbarrierhunting.com and you can find the blog on there so i put a new one out at least every couple weeks with sometimes the video of like this fall my hunting or it's an actual blog with you know some points that i make that hopefully you learn something from uh, or just me just sharing what i've learned you know over uh, the season or the years so there's that there and then our product uh buck bumper and buck bumper thick which is the uh wraps that are you know soundproof your equipment uh you can find those there too so uh and then we're on you know facebook and instagram uh, but if you go to our website you can pretty much get connected there and reach out to us if uh, they want to but yeah it's good talking with you guys uh been meaning to for a while i know we were going to connect this summer and it didn't quite happen but um good finally chatting adam and john and uh, thanks for having me on yeah, no problem. And uh, we'll definitely uh, have to catch up. We're going to be going back up to the Total Archery Challenge this year. So, you know, hopefully we can make it a point to to sit down and maybe do this again face-to-face. For sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Good.